so many channel programs look like this. And in return, all you're giving them, maybe you'll, you'll mention them on LinkedIn and send them an email occasion with opportunity. And like, why is my channel program not working, Sunir? Is it meant to work? Are you thinking about what the partner needs? Welcome to SaaS Connect, the SaaS Partnership Podcast, brought to you by the Cloud Software Association. Thank you, as always, to our podcast producers, content allies. They help B2B companies like you launch revenue-generating podcasts. They'll schedule interviews, produce the podcast, and promote it. Check them out at contentallies.com. Thank you, everyone. This is 11 years we've been doing this. Thank you so much to Lindsay and Tam and Novice for producing this event. And it's so great to have a team as strong as they are. So I just want to say thank you to them personally for doing this. Now, I will say my first SaaS conference I ever went to in 2007 was Office 2.0. And in the swag bag, if you remember what happened in 2007, the new iPhones came out. They gave each attendee a new iPhone. So oh, I want you guys to look into your swag bag and recognize we're a nonprofit, really. And I just gave you a napkin. And it's how we roll around here. We'll pass the hat around. Maybe next year, a new iPhone. I have this rule with the speakers, don't preach. And I'm the only exception because this is my church. But I was actually thinking, what is the case study? What is the pain and suffering that I went through in my own life? And I just got really peaked, especially with all this going on right now, about the times in my life and my partnerships where I totally bit it. I just wish I had a simpler way of explaining what we're doing and thinking about what we're doing. And I have these three kids and we go to restaurants like Montana's all the time and to entertain them. They have these placemats with crayons and it entertains them. And so many times I'm talking to the CEO of my company or the CRO of the other company, we're trying to make the partnership work. And I just wish I had a crayon and a napkin to explain to them what we do because it's so frustrating. The value is clear, but they don't get it. And this is what I've made for you, the partner napkin. So here we go. So it's really the original title was how to close high impact partnerships while you eat or how great partnership leaders talk to CROs with your mouth full because you've got to multitask. But I think partner napkin is where we're going to go. So here's the first question. And it's the, one of the most annoying questions in partnerships. Who owns the customer? How many companies out there feel like they have to own the customer? How many of you have already heard this joke last night? I know where I'm going with this. The CEO is like, well, we need to own the customer. I can't let the partner get involved. Or the partner goes, we need to own the customer. I'm a bit of a history buff, and I know that legally the customer owns the customer these days. And you have to approach things from the point of view the customer is the one in charge because they're the ones with all the money. They're king, queen, and God. And if you're a customer first, they point of view that we don't own anything, we serve the customer. So actually, the better question, I think, is who is the customer buying from, right? If you have this problem where CROs are not aligned with the idea that they serve a customer that is buying from them, then you're going to be in trouble. But if they can gap their head into the idea that we're selling to a customer, and the question in a partnership is who is the customer actually buying from, it will simplify a lot of the conversation. And I will tell you a little story. FreshBooks is in the room. George and the team are here. So you should thank me every day that I did this for you guys so you didn't have to do it. So I didn't actually start in partnerships. I only ended up here through a series of unfortunate life decisions, as we all know. I'm really a computer scientist, you know, and this is my torture, I guess. So I started working at FreshBooks in 2007. And my title was Marketing and Community Development, which is not even a title. It's a functional group. And I quickly changed to the chief handshaker. But we didn't really know who the customers were at the company because it's web and you can't see them. I used to work in physical spaces. And so we knew the customers. We'd follow them around, talk to them. Mike, who's the CEO there, is very customer oriented. We got in a rolling tin can, Mike, Saul, and I, and his friend Eamon, and literally drove from Miami 
to Austin, meeting customers and community leaders and partnering companies, like software companies along the way, just trying to figure out who they were. Now, I don't know how many of you are dedicated to the customer enough to get into an RV with your CEO for a week and a half. It is smelly. I'm going to tell you that. And there's definitely moments on that road trip where I was wondering whether I was going to get fired or I was going to be arraigned for murder, but it was very valuable. And we used to put these stats out at FreshBooks after we succeeded in partnerships that, yes, of course, 30% of the paid conversions cited our integration program as the reason why they bought FreshBooks. People who used integration were three times more likely to convert. People who came from an integrated partner were 10 times cheaper to acquire. And people started doing integrations a lot. This is really early in SaaS. We were one of the most vocal about integrations. But the reason why we did it was not because of the statistics. Those are the outcomes. The reason why we did that is when we went around to talk to customers everywhere, they kept asking, oh, do you work with this? I really need you to integrate with this product because this is what I use. I use this for time tracking. Can we track that? And we kept listening to them and saying, okay, the product is not complete until we fit it into their workflow. And that's where we launched our integrations program. It all drove from the customer. And the fact that and when you're doing a partnership, who's the customer buying from? They weren't necessarily buying FreshBooks first. Maybe they're buying Basecamp first. And then we happened to be the invoicing that supported Basecamp. They're the lead and we are the following partner. I have this thing I've been banging for a year now, trying to understand like where's partnerships fit into the organization. It's the only reason we do partnerships is because the customer needs that partner in order to buy from us. That's otherwise, who cares? You can build an ecosystem. You can have all the best friends in the world. You can have them come to San Francisco every year. You can buy them drinks. It doesn't mean anything. No offense to guys. I like the drinks, but it doesn't mean anything to your bottom line, right? Unless you're deriving value for the end customer. It's not about relationships. It's about impact. And that's really what I think everyone's focused on this year is like, how can we make partnerships more impactful, especially from the point of view of the CX suite? So I made this napkin. Some of you have it in your bag. You can go to partnernapkin.com and get it. There's some lying around. So I took everything I know. I'm not the smartest person here. I just gonna let you know. Everything I know, I fit on two pages. After this, I guess I'm canceled. I don't really need to work here anymore. I always say that partnership people should be the best at positioning. So when I was at FreshBooks, we spent a lot of time working on positioning. A lot. I did a lot of customer research. I really just came down to how would you describe FreshBooks in your own words? And then we went to parties. We played this pitch me game as uh, the customers would come to us, our customers, and we'd introduce to a new person. We'd say, get the customers to pitch us to the other person. And we just, that was very clear what we were. But when you're in partnership, you're dealing with lots of companies. And if you think about it, if this card partner is closer to the customer, the whole point of marketing is to get your story to that customer's ear. But if you're working through a partner, it's a game of broken telephone. And as everyone who's worked with a partner has ever known, you start, you organize all this co-marketing and enablement. You tell them, yeah, we can help you. We have this, all this stuff. And it comes out as garbled nonsense to the customer. And like, why is this not working? Because you're clear, not clear in your positioning statement. Pretty clear. The problem is the story is too complicated. But if you really think about it, your partner has their own story to sell. You're not important to the partner. They have to sell to the customer themselves. They have their own story they have to sell. And your story is only interesting to them. If they're the lead partner. If your story makes their story better. So you have to be really clear about what their story is and how you impact it. So this is a pretty standard positioning statement, Madlib. I think many of you might have seen this if you've done positioning. For any given customer, this company is a product that will solve this problem so the customer will get a result that they want. And in a partner view, you're extending the positioning statement by solving another problem. So there's some additional problem that the customer can't get the result that they want. So with your product and service, you can solve that problem. So that's how you write a positioning statement in a partnership model. There's a lead and a following. You're the following partner. This is, would be your positioning statement. So let's put an example. I'll just put myself in the hopper and just use ourselves as an example. 
So for SMB SaaS companies, you might use Recurly as your subscription billing software because you want customers to be able to buy directly online using self-serve product-led growth. So you can grow revenue that way. But the issue is, of course, when you start going to the channel, these partners also need to onboard these clients through that self-serve process. So AppBind can provide that ready-made partner client portal so that these partners can just use a self-serve billing as it is from Recurly and they can onboard clients and grow your channel, right? That's how we extend the Recurly positioning. That's how we'd work with them. They solve this problem. There's an additional problem. We can help them get their customers to get more revenue, which is the whole point. So this is something you can do with your partners. And if you don't have this story set, going internally to your other teams, like this partnership is important. If you don't have this two-paragraph positioning statement, the little story that goes around in people's heads, especially the customers, no one's going to see the benefit of why we're working with this partner because they won't have time to think about you. The whole point of positioning is give some people a very simple idea and a quick idea why we're even doing anything. The next thing is if you want to talk CRO, you got to think about how they think. And I struggled with this for a long time. And until I realized that the customer needs the partner to buy from us, like that's why we do partnerships. But the CROs don't think like this. The CROs in SaaS companies, they think about the life cycle. And so you have to talk about how the partner helps the customer advance to your customer life cycle. And that's how you work with other revenue teams in the company, because each team owns a part of the life cycle and they're getting blocked up because there's some problem that the customer needs a partner in order to solve. You know, you can lay out the life cycle of typically, you can, your company might model it different ways, but it's always the same. Marketing, sales, pre-sales, onboarding, adoption, renewal, and the viral components. And then you can lay out your partner and where it fits against this model. And honestly, you can go hog wild with this. You can really systematize and show the actual map of partnerships. This is one of the most useful things you can do to build buy into your company, is where does every partner fit into your life cycle and how do they relate to each other? And so you can build a map so that when your company is complaining, oh, we have this problem in the life cycle, oh, here are the partners that might impact that. You already have a plan and map in place that you can build buy-in ahead of time instead of randomly, chaotically dealing with the next partner who comes through the door. This provides some order to the conversations. So let me give you an example. So typically, people do demand. But I want to talk about a different part of the funnel where you might have problems is customers are not growing. So the people want to grow the life, like the net MRR, retention, onboarding, KPIs. The key KPI here in partner land is always the underlying revenue team's KPIs. And then you put the word partner in front of it. So the customer success team has net MRR, onboarding. Then you're going to go to the head of successes. You have these goals. I can help you advance your goals, your KPIs, with these partners. They're going to you know, love you if you can achieve that because you actually delivered value. So let me give you an example of a company who's really good at this. HubSpot, they have an amazing agency program. And so something I learned as well over the last year, I've been doing these interviews. Agency Connect is the other thing we do. You can see on agencycocktails.com, actually. It's all these interviews we do with the agencies. And if you're working in channel, you should listen to them. It's very interesting. So I interviewed this HubSpot elite partner, and I've been chasing the HubSpot agencies for a while because AppMind helps agencies procure and manage SaaS. And it turns out it was worthless. The elite partners were not interested. And not to say that the elite partners are worthless to HubSpot. They're a completely different part of the funnel. In their world, HubSpot loves them because they help existing HubSpot customers advance and grow their usage of HubSpot. They solve problems like content, setting up the pipelines, configuring HubSpot training. They do all these people services around HubSpot. So the HubSpot accounts are successful. That's the gap in the positioning statement. And from their point of view, though, they don't need to acquire other SaaS because they're working inside the HubSpot instance. So they don't need other products. And so when I was talking to them about building and incorporating other SaaS into their builds, they weren't interested. And I think many people have chased up this tree and wondered why it wasn't working. These lead partners don't generate leads for SaaS companies because they're so busy serving the leads from HubSpot because they're on the 
other half of the funnel, post-sales. And agencies are like this. There's a post-sales agency and a pre-sales agency. But what we did find is that down the stack of their metal tiers, they're like gold somewhat, silver and bronze for sure. They're completely different. They're not getting leads from HubSpot. They need the HubSpot support because they're going out on their own, finding customers to build systems. And they're the lead partner, right? They're not selling HubSpot. HubSpot is just a thing. Everyone has heard this from me. They're basically plumbers, right? They're fixing someone's bathroom. They're not going to make someone go buy the pipes. In their case, they're fixing a dentist's office marketing so they get clients and can make sure the clients show up for appointments and make sure that they're selling more services to the clients. They're setting up the marketing funnel for a customer. HubSpot is just a way to do that. The result they're selling to the client is revenue, marketing, right? And HubSpot's just a part. So in their world, this is the lead partner and they do bring other software in. So they're actually more interesting when you go down the stack, the smaller agencies, because they have to bring in the leads, right? They have to close their own clients. They're out marketing solutions to customers that are in the customer problem world rather than in the software product world. That's an interesting view. When you start looking at the life cycle, you can see the value network that what these companies do completely changes and you end up with a different agency program. And if you're trying to like yourself build an agency program by sending leads, and hoping that they'll send you a lead in return. You have to be really clear about that up front because they're agencies. They'll take free leads. They'll build a whole business around you handing them leads. It doesn't mean they're going to go find new leads for you because that's maybe not how they market. So you have to work together on them finding new customers for you if that's what you want. The other thing I realized is that there's also many ways to partner. There's four main ways that we do. Communications, service companies, tech companies, and distribution. There's certainly other ones like trade associations, lobbying groups, whatever. But these are the four main ones that we deal with. And any given partner can actually hit many parts of those kind of partnerships. If you're trying to align them to internal teams, then you have to see where they fit in. So taking another example, FreshBooks. So we have a lot of customers that AppBind use FreshBooks. So we did integration with them, right? Mainly, we wanted them to continue upgrading an AppBind and renewing. We want to serve them on the product side. But FreshBooks also has a marketplace and communications and webinars. So they also help on the communication side. But that's less important, perhaps, than the product integration. It's important to see that as well, that there's different kinds of things a partner can deliver to you and different kinds of partnerships, especially the sophisticated ones. And they may have different value, but they're also valuable in the net value of that partner. Finally, like I said, the KPIs, you should always think about your KPIs being related to the underlying revenue teams that you have, partner qualified leads, partner attached or influence revenue, net MRR per partner, monthly active users per integration. These are really important. Also keep in mind your partner has their own KPIs, right? And your KPI in post-sales is about onboarding a customer. Their KPI is going to be about acquiring a customer. So your KPIs are not going to be the same, but you have to know what your partner's KPI is because they're not going to be successful if you're not aware of how you're helping them being successful. So make sure you know both KPIs. I am fully freely admit I am the stupidest and laziest person in this room. And I learned something every year that is stunningly obvious. I learned something new. I was so surprised that when a partner has a customer and you want that customer to be your customer, that it's really important to map out the steps it takes for that customer to become your customer. That seems obvious in retrospect, but if you map it out, you see a lot of actual problems. How many times are we telling our partners to go jump in a lake every time they bring a customer to us? And that's why your programs aren't working, is it's too hard for them to actually bring a customer to you. Like I live in channel world, and so many channel programs look like this right? It just makes no sense. The partner is going out and bringing a customer. So in order to bring you a customer, you make them certify, which makes no sense. Why would they certify? They don't need your certification. They already have a customer, right? Then you make them sign a deal form 
right? And then you make them get onto a whole bunch of phone calls, right? The first with you and then the sales team, with the customer and the second thing. Now, keep in mind, these people sell time. So every phone call, every hour is $250 from their point of view. There's no value you're creating for them. So they get pissed off very quickly. And then you get into this valley of death where there's literally no way for them to get an account for themselves, right? And this is why we do all this deal registration of phone calls because you can't solve the actual problem. They just need the software. The plumber needs to go get a pipe so they can fix the toilet. That's why you're making so hard. And then at the end of the day, you're fighting over commissions so that you don't even get the margins. And then you don't even give them support at the end. So many channel programs look like this. And in return, all you're giving them, maybe you'll, you'll mention them on LinkedIn and send them an email occasion with opportunity. And like, why is my channel program not working, Sunir? Is it meant to work? Are you thinking about what the partner needs? I talk to these agencies all the time and I thought they wanted to expense or bill or sell software. No, all they want to do is get that customer onboarded on your software as fast as possible in a way that they can control so they can deliver the actual project deliverable to the customer. You are just a stapler right? <laughs> to a lawyer. They are doing something more important, like building a marketing funnel. You are a tool. Let them get the tools and deliver the project as fast as possible. I learned, and this is really what we realized, what would be an ideal partnership? And I interviewed. So we have 30 interviews on agency cocktails. I have another 20. I'm going through a lot of your channel programs, interviewing your partners that I'm having back in my backup. And it's really, that's all the same thing. We just need a simple story, the positioning statement of what is the value you're providing the customer, right? And how we work with you. Then they just need a way to get your accounts because they want to onboard the client as fast as possible. And all they want is support from you because they have to get that client successful. Simple. And in return, if you can promote them, that would be great. And maybe they'll certify because obviously you're going to promote the best partners. And they really just want help. Simple. It's crazy why this wasn't obvious to me in the first place. But there you go. I'm not saying I'm smart. So what we end up doing, just in our case, we started ripping apart AppBind and turning into widgets so that now you can embed insert your app, the account switcher, so they can create accounts, log in, log out of accounts, be invited into account by a client so they can quickly onboard. So that, and we usually drop that in using JavaScript and then your partners can just get on with getting an account for a client. So simple. And why even get them into this heavy argument of like how to procure, they just want an account. You can deal with the rest later. It's amazing. Just listening to partners enough and hearing their pain, you learn something funny. And then the final thing, I'm a mathematician and nothing says like opening keynote like math. So let's get into it. I promise there are no partial differential equations today, maybe complex numbers. I don't know. Okay. So expected value is really important. Your revenue officer is used to sales pipelines and they're going to look for what is the potential revenue impact of a partnership. This is quite tricky, right? Because there's actually a lot of things that are varying per partnership that salespeople don't necessarily vary. It's kind of constant for part for sales, but partnerships have more variability and more unpredictability. But we can try to build predictable revenue in partnerships by thinking about it using expected value. It's really simple. What is it? You're just like, how much money could we potentially make? How much is it going to cost us? And what's the probability it's going to be successful? That's expected value. I think when you're doing a napkin level analysis, just keep it simple because you're just trying to get a general size of what the opportunity is. So it's really simple. How much money can you make? How big is the partner? How many customers do they have? And what's the ACV per customer? How much money per customer are you going to make? That gives you a base cash value of this opportunity. How much is it going to cost you in marketing and development? And then how like you're going to succeed? There are really only two things. I usually call this partner hot to trotness, but you probably internally would go with eagerness. But how excited is a partner to close this? Because as we all know, a lukewarm partner is going to do nothing for you, but they're really excited. That's really the ones that work. And really the other thing is customer demand. If customers don't really want this partnership, the market is the answer to all things, right? If the customers want it, it's going to happen. If they don't want it, it doesn't matter what you do. 
So you should know a little bit of that. And you just multiply it all together and you get the result. And I would just say, when you're estimating, it's really hard to get exact numbers, because how would you know? I just use t-shirt sizes, extra small to extra large, and you just number it from one to five, basically. And this gives you a rough score to sort your partners out. So I'll just do a couple examples of math, if you can handle it. Imagine Intuit wants to do a webinar with us. I love Intuit, right? So the channel size is huge, the customers are SMBs, a little bit of marketing cost to that, a little bit more than a typical webinar, because Intuit, they have some requirements. The partners are very excited, but customers don't really want a webinar from us because it's a webinar, let's face it. The expected value, you multiply together, you get a score of roughly 30. It's a reasonable opportunity. I wouldn't say no if I had nothing but better to do, but that's what it is. Meanwhile, imagine Active Campaign wants to do an integration. Here, a little bit smaller than Intuit, but the customers are more valuable. A lot more engineering required for this. Partner is like less excited because it's just another integration from their point of view. But the customer demand happens to be very high because we're doing it because the customer wants us to do it. So the expected value is much higher. So between these two, I have a rough reason to say to the CRO, we're going to focus on this one other than that one. And if you focus on things with higher scores over time, you're going to show eventually higher impact because it gives a way of prioritizing against that system or partnerships what to do. Okay, enough math. It's probably too much math for one whole day. Bring it home. Why are we here? No, really, we're here for impact. We're coming here to have impact in our jobs, on the customer, in our businesses. That's, I hope, everything I know on two pages, which is sad, but there you go. I hope this helps you. There's a bunch of them around if you want to play with it. I'd be interested in if we can make improvements on it. And uh, yeah, thank you so much for coming here. Hopefully you use these sessions to make a bigger impact this year. Thank you so much. If you like this and want more great insights on software partnerships, you've got to rate, like, and subscribe and join us at thecloudsoftwareassociation.com. Thank you as always to our podcast producers, content allies. They help B2B companies like you launch revenue generating podcasts. They'll schedule interviews, produce the podcast and promote it. Check them out at contentallies.com. We'll see you on the next episode.